Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 301 Varieties of Contemplative Experience. In this episode, Willoughby Britton and Daniel Ingram join the Geeks of the Round Table to discuss the latest developments of Willoughby's Varieties of Contemplative Experience project, which has a particular focus on helping people through the experience of the dark night. This is part one of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. I am Emily Horn, and today I am joined um, by Daniel Ingram, Kelly Sosan-Bearer, Willoughby Britton, to discuss um, the recent Times article, The Dark Side of Meditation. So a little bit about our guest today, which Kelly and I are very excited to um, co-host. Um, Daniel Ingram is an ER doctor, and he's also the author of Dharma Overground and an authorized teacher in the Theravada tradition. Willoughby Britton, she is the director of the Dark Knight Project through Brown University and has done a lot of research on the stages of the contemplative path and the dark kind of qualities that can come along with that, along with some of the positive attributes as well. Um, so today, we're going to really just dive in. This is going to be a personal and informal conversation around um, the Dark Knight Project and some of the research that's happened there. And really, um, using this article, The Dark Side of Meditation, it was a Times article. You can read it and see it in the invite, um, the event invite of this show. So if you wanted to pull that up and kind of look at it, you can do that now. And, you know, really what spurred this conversation on was um, a curiosity about um, all the attention that is coming through the meditation um, practice and mindfulness in the mainstream culture and how we don't really talk about um, the dark side and the dark effects um, that happen sometimes. And um, the, in this particular article, the Buddhist Geeks interview was mentioned um, that Vince Horn um, did with Willoughby of a couple years ago. So I thought a good place to just jump in is to um, ask Willoughby, like, how's the Dark Knight Project going? Like, what's what's happened since the last time you talked to Vince? Because it's been a couple years. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, sure. The Dark Knight Project, uh, the first update about that is that it's no longer called that. Oh. Uh, uh, it's called, it's now called the Varieties of Contemplative Experience um, for a number of reasons. One is that nobody wants to fund anything called, you know, meditation <laughs> difficulties. So Varieties is probably a little bit more uh, neutral. And also the, the term Dark Knight was actually stolen from... Uh, from Christian, uh, similar experiences in the Christian tradition. So uh, there's been some issues around that as well. So it can be its pet name, but the official name is the Varieties of Contemplative Experience. Um, and for those of you who haven't listened to that podcast, the basic idea behind that study is pretty much what it sounds like, is to empirically investigate and document the full uh range of different experiences that can arise in the context of meditation and contemplative practices. Um, science uh, up until this point has been 
excellent at documenting many of the benefits, um, especially the medical and psychological benefits, but there's a lot more to it. And we want to be able to really get a sense of the full range of experiences and what we can expect so that people can have more of like an informed consent before they begin any practice. And also um, what kinds of support structures are needed to support certain kinds of practices or people um, as they progress through the practice. So the way that we've been doing that is um, we've interviewed about 40 teachers and, and Buddhist scholars. Um, Adi Ashanti is going to be one of our next ones. And if you're a teacher um, in a recognized tradition um, that has something to say on this topic, we welcome your input. We've also interviewed about 35 practitioners. It takes a really long time to interview people because we have to code everything they say into categories. And so we have about 50 people on the waiting list, but we're also, um, if you have experiences that you'd like us to catalog, feel free to get in touch. We have expanded, the initial interviews were, were with about 80% of them were actually meditation teachers and mostly in the Theravada uh, sort of IMS spirit rock tradition. Um, and now we're making sure to be very even handed across traditions, make sure we get equal representation from Zen, um, Vajrayana, Theravada. So that's one of the first updates. The second one is that we actually got uh, a grant to expand beyond Buddhism actually into the Abrahamic tradition. So looking at effects of contemplative practices in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And as I mentioned, the dark night was coined um, within the context of Christianity. So we actually know that a lot of spiritual practices um, tend to have um, some difficult periods that can be expected. Um, another group that we're interviewing are clinicians who use mindfulness in their therapies. There's been a lot of questions about well, you know, this might happen, difficulties might arise for people who are on go on retreats, but that's sort of their problem. And for the sort of medical secular versions like MBSR, like we don't really need to worry about that. And so that's an assumption that we just don't have empirical data on. And so we've been actually interviewing some people who, clinicians that are actually using um, mindfulness and meditation practices in their therapy. And yesterday we interviewed Ron Siegel, who's on the board of directors for the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy. And he gave us a great interview. Um, I haven't transcribed it yet, but um, he, he definitely has seen a range of different experiences as well within the clinical context. Um, and then along those same lines, we're actually taking the code book that has come from the Dark Knight Project, and, and these are mostly much more advanced meditators. Um, about 60% of them had experiences on retreats, about 40% in daily practice, but you know, much, they're doing a couple hours a day, typically. So we're taking that code book um, and actually asking the items from the code book in a, in a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy uh, sample. So just a group of people that took a, took a eight week program and are they having any of those same kinds of symptoms? And I can definitely say that they are, it's not obviously as severe as what we're seeing. Um, but definitely some of the same things are coming up specifically, um, de-repression of traumatic memory is very, very common. Um, an enhancement of, of, you know, stronger emotions, some over, uh, stimulus overload types of things. So um, those are some of our developments. Um, there is an, a replication study that's starting in Germany um, by this researcher Uli Ott. So we'll be getting to see um, sort of a dark night project Europe going on. 
And then um, next week, actually, in Toronto, Michael Stone and I will be running the first training uh, for clinicians to start educating them on some of the difficulties that arise in meditation. And even though this research isn't finished and it's not nothing's really published yet, we want to make sure that um, the people who are going to see, be seeing a lot of people who are coming off retreats and having difficulty, we want to make sure they have at least some information, um, even if it's not peer-reviewed yet. And then in terms of publications, we actually do have our first publication under review, a, a journal called Frontiers in Consciousness Research. Um, and it's the first, it'll be the first um, paper from this study, which will be specifically on the experience of lights. So visual lights, um, which are technically considered hallucinations, um, uh, emerging in the context of meditation. And then we talk about the neurobiological um, mechanisms, sort of speculate on that, and then also go through a number of different Buddhist texts um, that mention lights in the context of meditation. So if you want uh, to keep up with the Dark Knight Project, there is, a, there is an organization and a website, Cheetah House. So you can go to www.cheetahouse.org um, and you'll see all of our updates up there. The, the, some of the most recent ones, if you look at the videos, Michael Stone and I have a video about the upcoming uh, training. Um, I have an interview with Lee Brasington on um, specifically on side effects of concentration practices, which is a really great interview. Uh, and I also presented very briefly um, the, the Varieties of Contemplative Experience project to the Dalai Lama. Um, and there's a video of that presentation, which is pretty uh, interesting. And um, we're hoping to have to start an online support group because we're getting a ton of calls from people in distress and it just the numbers aren't working out where there is enough people to take care of the number of people in demand that are demanding help. So we're thinking of actually doing this Google Hangouts. Um, we started piloting Google Hangouts um, for the idea of, of having a support group. So. Um, a number of Dharma teachers have volunteered their time to help facilitate, um, but if you're a Dharma teacher and would like to help out, um, we would love to have help. Um, just There's just so many people that need help. So that's my update. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. You kind of alluded to this a little bit in your update, um, but I'm curious, Daniel um, and Willoughby, like, have you seen um, in your professions, I know, Daniel, you work a lot with students, and then you also work in the ER. Have you seen an increase in dark night cases over the last, I don't know, couple years since mindfulness is becoming more and more into the mainstream? And I'm also curious if you have any suggestions of, because um, one of my curiosities lays in like how since mindfulness, a lot of the applications and programs do divorce this per se from the spiritual maps. Um, what are what kind of suggestions do you have um, to integrate this back in? I know Willoughby, you've done a lot of work in that area. Well, I can say so. The idea that there's suddenly this epidemic or there's an increase, um, I I obviously can't speak to that because I'm incredibly biased because I get, you know two or three phone calls every week of somebody in crisis from all over the world, um, every, almost every continent. So um, to me, it seems like an epidemic, but I'm sure I'm maybe one of the only people that's getting these phone calls. So, or maybe not, I don't know. Um, so I think that that's hard to, for me to, to gauge. Um, but I also think we should keep in mind that 
another thing has been happening alongside of this, which is that meditation is being offered to a much wider range mm -hmm. of people mm -hmm. and psychiatric conditions, including much more severe psychiatric conditions. So when MBSR started, there were a number of psychiatric conditions that were like off the table. Um, people, kinds of people that were ruled out from going into MBSR were people with eating disorders and um, substance abuse problems and psychosis or history of psychosis and trauma histories. All those things were like, you know, not, you know, kind of seen as being like, well, this might not be a great idea for meditation practice. Now there's, there's clinical trials on every single one of those things. So I think that it's not as simple as saying, oh, Americans are now freaking out because of meditation. It's like we're mixing meditation with uh, populations that may have never seen it, n never had access to it before, at least in this kind of way. So that's just something we should keep in mind. I'm sure Daniel has lots to say about this. <laughs> yeah, I get a few contacts a week one way or the other through emails or other things or see on the Dharma Overground forum. Um, about people having difficulties with meditation as well. So, but again, it's very hard to tell. I have the same problem you do now that I'm in, you know, in that setting. I'm seeing more, but that's only obvious. You know, it's it's only natural because, of course, they're they're um, you know, that's where they're finding uh, these things in reports of difficulty, and they're sort of you know, you know, um, gathering uh, together and searching around, and so they they you know find us. Um, in my clinical practice. I don't think I really obviously see it at all in any way that's easy to sort out because I exist in a context where there's essentially no meditation culture, basically. Most of the time I'm working now in, in um, Tupelo, Mississippi, and I, if there's MBSR around, I don't know of it. Um, if there's anybody around meditating, I don't know. But there, you know, there may be the occasional yoga class and stuff which can do things like this. But the context in which I work is very traditionally allopathically medical, and I really don't go there at all. Um, even if I might have suspicions, I don't go there. I don't ask those questions. Um, and so I, I keep the two extremely segregated. In my um, emergency medicine practice, I do very straightforward, traditional emergency medicine. And and, um, and then in my Dharma world, Dharma overground practice, I get lots of it. Um, you know, So I see these things all the time. I've even sent you a few where I'm like, wow, that's actually slightly out of my, you know, um, thing and trying to figure out how, where to send these people is not straightforward at the moment. I totally agree with you. There's just not a, enough of a, an established uh, network of resources for everybody um, to get all the help they need. Um, and so most of the time I refer people back to traditional people on the ground there and say, you're going to have to go through more traditional routes, traditional meds, traditional antipsychotics, traditional oh. you know, therapy, you know, counseling, plus reach out and find the other, but I'm, I pretty much refer everybody back to traditional resources, which are probably going to be to some degree inadequate for them if, you know, there is some sort of meditational related context to these things, but it's a start and it's better than nothing and it's better than alienating from those because what I think the problem um, where some people just want to use meditative solutions or meditation technology solutions, where a lot of them actually are probably going to really benefit from sort of traditional medical mm -hmm. stabilization until they can get to a place where, you know, and integrate other modalities of, and other ways of thinking about this. So I, I tend to go a pretty um, conservative route uh, for a lot of this um, stuff, make sure people have family members who are aware of what's going on, local psychotherapy options, and send them to the ER if they're really having a hard time. Yeah, I think it's very complex because we're we're seeing really two extremes and everything in between. And the and the two extremes are 
people that are having actually classic meditation experiences and because of their lack of sort of theoretical preparation or the context that they're in that they're and maybe they're seeing a therapist um, that it's being their experiences are being pathologized so i've definitely seen lots of people that in my clinical opinion i can't see anything pathological about them they're having experiences of uh you know insight into selflessness um, and it's scaring them a lot and they're getting diagnosed with schizophrenia and depersonalization disorder um, and it, it doesn't seem like that to me um, so that's one sort of extreme where it's it's really it's really um, sort of lack of knowledge of what to expect and that's actually kind of what I'm hoping to help out with yeah but now and this is probably another sort of unfortunate development of this project and the, the sort of increased media attention that it's getting is that now and this is probably also always happened is that people are romanticizing or spiritualizing a mental illness that really needs treatment like Dan said, like they need antipsychotics. They don't need to go on our meditation retreat. So mm -hmm. I've also seen that, and we see that actually a lot at Brown in that there's a number of, uh, particularly in the age range of like 18 to 25, when first episode illnesses, particularly bipolar disorder and psychosis, schizophrenia, show their first uh, episodes is that um, I see a lot of students trying to treat it with meditation and they, you know, a lot of times they have something happen while they're on retreat, but it was actually, it probably would have happened anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, and so then That's there's the like, tie into the article there, by the very, way. very, yeah. very difficult to, to be able to tease those things out. So it's, yeah. And, and you're saying, like, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying, cause I've always been, I'm curious about with the application of more and more mindfulness techniques um, out there, because I managed a grant um, for veterans and veterans hospitals in LA, and I saw some of um, what was happening there, and some of it was really great. And I always wondered, do people tend to progress into this territory if they don't have the intention and the inclination towards awakening? And that's what you're saying. That's what I'm hearing you say, is that they can get into this territory. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that if you do these practices enough, it doesn't really matter what context you're doing them in. It doesn't necessarily, you, you, it's, it's not sufficient to say, oh, I was doing it for stress reduction, therefore I'm safe from getting any insight into the nature of reality. I mean, <laughs> no, these, these practices were designed to have, you know, to, for you to discover the three characteristics, that's what they're for. So if they don't do that and you've been meditating for 30 years and they're pretty <laughs> terrible at doing what they're yeah. supposed to do. So yeah, they're, that's gonna happen. I mean, if you watch your experience for long enough, this stuff's gonna be start to become apparent. So I don't think there's a context that can protect you from, from having insight, which is why I think we need to be more straightforward about it and also have better support structures in place. <laughs> Meditation is not an insight-free zone. <laughs> <laughs> Extrapolating from that, I actually would um, posit these are basic um, uh, stages of human development that are totally um, uh, just intrinsic to the way um, people's brains uh, wake up as they get older. Um, some of them, not all of them, people progress at you know different rates and some people don't necessarily cross certain 
thresholds necessarily, but plenty of people do. And actually, I know a reasonably large number of people now who actually cross these <clears throat> things in contexts that if, if they were related to meditation, it was only in the loosest of ways, such as um, uh, breath control uh, workshops for acting classes. You know, I mean, that's not really meditation. They were just, you know, learning to how to, you know, say a long line and project to the back of the audience and not run out of breath by the end of it. And they crossed the arising and passing away just by whatever degree of mindfulness or, or attention or, you know, insight um, or, uh, you know, um, you know, learning to w work with their internal experience to modulate, you know, the amount of air that they were letting out. And, and that was enough to cross the, you know, the rising and passing away and into the dark night. Um, plenty of other things, plenty of people taking yoga classes, plenty of people who have uh, crossed this stuff on long marches actually would be amazed if in the military you didn't see this a lot. Um, and actually, I think that would be a fascinating thing to look at. You know, long marches are very meditative. You know, you do a 20 mile hike and you're just sitting there walking, walking, walking. That's really meditative practice. You're not, you know, and so th there are a lot of uh, contexts where people can cross into the stuff that don't seem to have anything to do with MBSR or formal meditation practice or anything like that. I actually think by this point, I probably know, I'd guess a few hundred people um, who have uh, who crossed it before they got into meditation and that's why they got into meditation. So it happened the other way around. They got into meditation because something was starting to call them in some kind of direction and it started to resonate with them. Um, and they were like, wow, okay, that, that's making sense to me now. It was making sense to them because they already had insight. Anyway, so, so. so Dan and I, uh, we had a, he was at our meeting, the Contemplative Development Mapping Project, and we both independently came up with the best possible metaphor, which we, which we totally independently came up with, which is the metaphor of pregnancy. So do you want to say your part about no. that? <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, he basically said that he, you know, you, there's people come into the emergency room and they are like, well, I wasn't meaning to get pregnant. He's like, well, there's certain kinds of things that if you do them, like have a very, very high likelihood that this is going to happen and it doesn't matter what your intention is. Right, um, yes. And so that was yeah. sort of Daniel's um, metaphor. And the way, the way that I see it working out is that, um, you know, kind of like what you were saying, Daniel, about like, this being a human potential in that like pregnancy is is a sort of it's a human potential it's a particular like stage of growth and life and wow it could be like an yeah. amazingly beautiful transformative thing mm -hmm. if you if you have good health care and you know what to expect and you you know you know what's going on and you want it to happen and it can be a terrifying thing imagine if you didn't know what pregnancy was and it started to happen to you and you were having all these bizarre changes in your body like i mean that, that, i'm sure that's happened and then suddenly happened. you had terrifying thing, that would be you know and, this bowling ball sized thing coming out of you and like, amazing pain and you had no idea what was going on yeah yeah and you're going to want to prepare for the fact that some your life's about <laughs> to change dramatically and you might want to understand that so it's it has a lot of good it's a good metaphor you guys both mentioned um, people contacting you like on a weekly basis. Have oh, you yeah. noticed yeah. Uh, for help? Um, yeah. Have you guys noticed any common characteristics of the people that are contacting you, or is there any kind of common themes for issues that they're trying to work out? Is there any like memes at all in the people that are reaching out to you? Nearly everybody, the, the common theme for me is nearly everybody has recently crossed the horizon and passing away. If you go back and, you know, start asking them what just happened to you, 
Mm-hmm. You know, what was going on? What were your mind states like? Tell me about the last, you know, few months or when this all started. When did the the trouble start? You know, or things start getting difficult or strange or whatever. Nearly everybody reports some sort of a rising and passing away like event. Not everybody, but most. And then you get um, people who, again, exactly like um, Willoughby said, are probably just having their first event or a recurrent event. And some people have had diagnoses for a long time, schizophrenia or bipolar or, or um, whatever it is. And uh, that is getting mingled up in meditation. And some of that can get really hard to sort out. Some of it is extremely challenging to try to figure out, okay, they know they have known disease and how different are from they are they from their baseline and have their meds changed. And, you know, it gets, it gets complicated. And so, but a lot of people are having real trouble. They're having strange experiences. They're having new dysfunction. They're having new depression, anxiety, fear, um, and other bizarre. Yeah. Again, the derealization, depersonalization experiences, um, where they, you know, like the, I, I literally just got an email like two days ago, you know, the person's like, I don't exist. Nothing exists. Everything's, you know, I'm sitting there at the dinner table, you know, with my family and I realize that none of them exist and I don't exist. And, and they're all just sitting there and, and they don't realize they don't exist, but I'm realizing they don't exist and it's freaking me out. And I mean, I'm like, you know, it's, it's the email that's, you know, about to have to reply to, you know, it's like, okay, that's, that's, that's a trick, you know? So what do you do with that? You know, anyway, so, um, but that's, that's sort of uh, what I get a lot of. Yeah, I would say, I mean, so we have, I'd say probably a hundred people have contacted me because I am actually keeping track and that we've formally interviewed about 35. And I did, we, the last time we sort of did an analysis of those, the first like 30 or 29 people, um, we, we looked for, you know, similarities amongst them and, uh, or anything that could kind of predict why this would happen. And, there weren't a lot of things. I mean, the one thing that I would say is that this probably doesn't happen to lazy people um, and that you're going to have to, many, many people describe themselves as like fairly ardent meditators um, and that they put in their time. So if you're kind of a weekend warrior and like can barely fit in your five minutes, it's you're, you're probably okay. Um, although I don't know, Dan might disagree. No, I disagree. Um, I've, I've seen plenty of people no. who on, on nearly okay. no doses crossed okay. into trouble. Yeah. I mean, we, again, we see people where it happens in daily practice, but I, I have seen two kind of general categories. Um, and, and it actually splits by age. So there's a, there's a category that's like usually 18 to 30. Um, and they tend to be male, um, mm-hmm. and they tend to get into pretty serious practice, like very quickly. Um, and a lot of them go to Asia and ordain, um, or they go and like train with Upandita. I mean, these guys are not messing around. So yeah. that's, that's one category. Um, and they seem to get into some pretty interesting territory fairly quickly. Um, and then these are people that are logging in between 10 and 20 hours a day kind of people. Like the deep end, um, deep end divers. <laughs> yeah. Um, very, very intensive retreat practice. And, you know, like we actually had to create a scale called the zealotry scale because we think it's a major predictor. Um, so that's that's one group. Um, and then the other group tend to be, um, much more, um, middle-aged and probably female. Not, this is like, obviously there's a mix of both genders and both, but, um, and these are people that have been going to IMS and Spirit Rock, you know, for the last... 25, 30 years, 
you know, maybe doing one or two retreats a year, have been practicing very, very loyally and at least an hour a day. Um, and then after like seven or 10 years, then something happens. So it's, it doesn't always happen right away. Sometimes it's like, oh, I've been meditating a long time. And for those people, it's very, very difficult because they've developed such a, an attachment with their practice that it's mm -hmm. really something that they do. It's really part of their identity. And then suddenly, you know, an immense amount of terror or sort of really difficult things start to come up. And, and those, that's very, very difficult um, to, to see. But those are the kind of the two different different categories. Yeah. Nice. And I would, I would also say that most of the people that call me, I mean, again, this is a bias by like how much time I spend on the phone, but that just the initial contact of like just having the conversation with someone, having them tell me the, this sort of story of what happened to them. Um, and then having me just say like, oh yeah, I've heard all of this before. Not a, a single thing that you said was new. And they're like, really? Just, just knowing that is like probably 80% yeah. of like the, what, what needs to be provided for them is just the normalization of a lot of things that they're talking He's about. Normalizing. Yeah. And that's why I want to have a support group because like I'm hearing the same story over and over and over again. I don't need to hear it again, but it would be really great if they could share it with each other because you're like, Oh, I thought it was nuts, but like everyone's saying this. So. I'm curious. I don't know if you've tracked this at all, but I, I was listening. Um, the first interview that you did with Vince, it was either first part or second part. I don't remember. You're saying that people, they get into this territory, it can affect their daily lives. And you said it's something about an average of three years. That's right. So, yeah. Have you so, seen a difference in that at all since you started, like, since you've put some other um, I mean, I think that, you know, you got to realize that a lot of the data from this study is an artifact of how we're collecting the data. So we're yeah. deliberately looking for the worst case scenarios. Like we went to a bunch of meditation centers and talked to the directors and said, tell us the worst <laughs> things you've seen ever. And like, can we talk to those people? So, you know, I, I imagine that if I continued to sample until the end of my life, eventually the average amount of time you know, that somebody was out of commission and unable to work or really, really distressed by their symptoms would, there'd be much more people where there'd be a very brief amount of time. But right now we're, we're collecting the worst case scenarios. And yeah, the average amount of time for people to have a real uh, impairment in their functioning is about three years um, with a range. Right now our range is between six months and 20 years. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it depends. I mean, there, there's a guy, Gopi Krishna, if you want to read a, a sort of published uh, tale, he wrote a book called, I forget exactly, but it's something like... Living with he, Kundalini, I think. Well, well there's like okay. Living with Kundalini that he wrote like on his 12th year, because he's like, oh, this has got to be over soon, so I'll write my book now. And then, uh, and then like, you know, 10 years later, he's like, still living with Kundalini, and it's another <laughs> book. Um, so it can give you a sense of that sometimes these things can last a while. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned the um, support group and needing folks to help out with that and meditation teachers. And um, we just got a question from the from the Buddhist Geeks community. Yeah. Uh, folks, folks want to know how they can do that. How can they help out? What's the best way for them to get in contact? So if you go to the Cheetah House website, they, there's contact information on there. You can or you can email me um, with my email is willoughby underscore Britain at brown edu or you can or write Cheetah House. Um, the kinds of people that we're looking for are, uh, it's actually 
more important that you've actually had these experiences yourself mm -hmm. um, than if you're a teacher who hasn't had these experiences. We haven't found that particular population to be particularly helpful. So um, if you got some more stories, that's good. You need <laughs> some street, street cred with these people. Yeah. It's kind of like AA. Tales from like, the trenches. Yeah. <laughs>